Matthew 26. It says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grab a seat. Thank you, worship team. Well, uh, it's been a big year, and uh, I've been wanting to speak about this subject for a long time, and I think it's a good opportunity to do so after uh, the tragic events of a couple of weeks ago uh, where the All Blacks lost the Rugby World Cup. And I know I've mentioned this every single sermon since uh, then, uh, but, oh man, you know, sometimes you think you're okay, and then you're not, you know, as you just consider what could have been, and, uh, and as you kind of work through the grief of that moment. And I know that's not a universal experience in the room. Now for other people, it's been a great month. God bless you. Grace and peace. Very happy for you. Uh, but uh, joking aside, I want to speak to the universal experience of going through grief. Um, and I've just been thinking a lot about the fact that this is just like a universal experience, uh, is that we, we go through grief. Everyone carries grief. And uh, as you get older, the cold hard facts are that you're going to die. <laughs> I say this all the time, but you're going to die. It's just trippy, right? There's, someone tweets this every day. I don't follow the account because it would just give me an existential crisis every week. But it's like every day that they say you're one, you're one day closer to eternity. Stop and think about that. That's full on, eh? And the two options are that you die a bit younger and a whole lot of people you love see you die or that you go to a whole lot of funerals because you die in ripe old age. Yay! Oh, isn't this encouraging? Oh, man, this is the lift you've needed in late and mid-November, isn't it? Um, and so I, there's this sense, but, but I've been really just recognising in my own journey now that I'm in my 40s um, just how, like at a certain point of life, you carry a whole lot of little griefs as well. And they just start accumulating as you go through life. And they really do start to add up. So I want to explore this morning what it looks like to process grief well. Uh, we're all carrying varying levels of grief this morning. And we'll continue to accrue losses until we die ourselves. So how can we do that in a wise way? How can, what does the Bible say about navigating losses and what does Jesus model? Now, I'm aware as we talk about this, there are people that, have, uh, that are here this morning carrying grief from catastrophic losses, where someone perhaps very close to us has died, the king hits of life, that take a long time to process, and on one level, I don't think you ever fully recover, and I know there's a bunch of, of you that have experienced this in your life. And I just love that the Holy Spirit is our comforter, um, because I'm like, how beautiful and how necessary 
is it that the Holy Spirit is our comforter? And may you know afresh, if that's you, the, the comfort of the Holy Spirit as we explore something that you are living this morning. But I think there's also, as I've been mentioning, a whole bunch of other sources of grief that we have to take seriously and process well. Um, there's all these little things that, that we need to work through. And uh, we'll dive into some of those in a second. But the thing is, if we don't process this stuff well, Richard Raw says this, like, whatever's not transformed is transmitted. So whatever we don't work through, we wind, there's normally the people closest to us that wind up suffering a bit because we transmit the, the grief that we carry, the losses that we haven't processed, and it winds up hurting people. Uh, and we, we inevitably will transmit that unprocessed grief, and it will manifest itself in lots of ways. It can be anger, low-level depression. It can be addiction, hypersensitivity. There's a whole lot of research around this. Uh, Pete Scazzaro points this out. He says, sadly, the result of denying and minimizing our wounds over many years is that we become less and less human, empty Christian shells with painted smiley faces. For some, a dull, low-level depression descends upon us, making us nearly unresponsive to all reality. Sometimes in the church, it's been like, oh, associating or talking about anger and sadness and grieving is kind of like unspiritual. It's like, man, you're doing something wrong if that's the case. <laughs> It's kind of like we've been, we've been the, like, oh, no, we're all good, you know. Um, but the reality is that we all go through the stuff. I mean, Jesus was fully clear. Every human being is going to go through pain and suffering. Jesus said, in this world, you will face trouble. It wasn't like uh, if, you, if you face trouble. It's like, no, when you face trouble, you will. You will. And so there's these little griefs that start, griefs that start and losses that can add to the big hits of life. And because grief at the end of the day is the loss of something, right? It's a loss of something. And so uh, friends can move away or a dream ends in disappointment. Uh, our children grow up and move and grow away from us. Um, jobs get lost. Uh, we have dreams that don't come to pass. Um, you know, a lot of people here from South Africa and other countries, you've, there's, a, there's a sense of immigrating here and there's a loss around you know, a culture that, that was familiar to you that is no longer part of your daily experience. Um, you, know, the, 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 you know, I thought I'd be married by now and it hasn't played out. Or uh, I thought that, you know, <laughs> I thought my music career would be, <laughs> I'd be smashing it. And, and here I am at Bay Vineyard this morning again or whatever it may, <laughs> may be. <laughs> Um, but uh, there, there, sometimes we live in the consequences of choices that we made when we were younger, and we didn't realize that these choices that we made back then would have consequences that we have to live with, that we walk with a bit of a limp. And so I've, I, there's all these things that we can just begin accumulating and carrying. And part of the reason I've been, I've been wanting to share this is because, again, I've just been like, oh, man, I've just been realizing like I'm, there's a whole lot of little things that I'm kind of working through. Uh, you may have noticed, you because you guys all sit behind me. I'm balding. Has anyone else noticed that? Has anyone else mentioned that? Might have you noticed it? <laughs> and it's like, and I was like, oh, you know, I look into the live stream one day, I'm like, crikey, oh my gosh, <laughs> look what's happened. What's happened? It's gone. It's going real quick. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've just spent the last, um, I was in Mahia yesterday and the day before, which was so good, um, doing some surfing with some friends, and I'm like, oh man, I am not, as fit as I used to be in my twenties, you know that whole thing is gone, um, you know. But then there's a whole lot of like I've been in ministry twenty years, and so like, um, and people leave your church when you're a pastor. Some for just good reasons, move cities and stuff. But it's still sad. Uh, and then there's people that leave, and it really hurts. 
and like you just accrue that every year. Um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I've got friends of mine who are in my 20s. We were so on fire for Jesus. And I was like, they will never not, we'll never not be on fire for Jesus. We're going to go so hard all our lives. And a bunch of those guys don't follow Jesus anymore. Don't know where they're at. I mean, they could still probably got a faith of some description, but they're certainly not in, in church. And, and they used to be leading things in church or leading churches. You know what I mean? Like there's just that uh, uh, people that uh, I carry this grief because I see people walk away from institutional church gatherings like this, with no real consideration about what that's going to do to a family line. So I'm like, so again, I just like, because I can see the consequences, a whole lot of data behind that, but there's that grief for me of like, I can't change, you know, like that. Um, Pete Scazzaro says this, he said, the story of Job is, is, is the story of us all. Job lost everything in one day, his family, his wealth, his health. Most of us experience our losses more slowly over the span of a lifetime until we find ourselves on the door of death, leaving everything behind. It's the reality of life. And so again, I think it's helpful for us to talk about this. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser, oh, such a nuts. Oh, he's phenomenal. Listen to this. He's talking about grieving as a spiritual exercise in this outstanding article. This is so profound. Have a listen. Our wounds are real and there is nothing we can do about them, pure and simple. The clock can't be turned back. We can't relive our lives so as to provide ourselves with different parents, different childhood friends, different experiences on the playground, different choices, and a different temperament. We can only move forward so as to live beyond our wounds. And we do that by grieving. Alice Miller submits that the entire psychological and spiritual task of midlife and beyond is of grieving, mourning our wounds until the very foundations of our lives shake enough so that there can be transformation. A deep psychological scar is the same as having some part of your body permanently damaged in an accident. You will never be whole again and nothing can change that, but you can be happy again, perhaps more happy than ever before. But that loss of wholeness must be grieved or it will manifest itself in anger, bitterness and jealous regrets. So this is deep water, but, it's the, the, but it is the human experience. And so there's all sorts of ways that we can kind of deal with our grief. The reality is that the only way out is through. You have to process these things, big or small. Uh, John Mark Comer is re- releasing a book, and I've managed to have a bit of a sneak peek at some of the, uh, uh, that comes out in, in January. And he's talking about discipleship formation and the reality, uh, my whole chapter on like the fact that suffering and grieving is actually one of the ways that, that one of the primary ways that we're deeply formed and shaped to be my, more like Jesus if we allow him into that space. But how does our culture process grief or loss, whether it's little things or big things? Uh, and he suggests there's three things that, that often we're very tempted to do. First is to deny it. Uh, and so just, you know, there's this horrible kind of, you've probably heard, you've probably thought it, I've thought it. Oh, it's not too bad. Old Charlie's got it worse than me. Right? And it's like, well, whatever we go through, we're constantly thinking, and the reality is, that yes, there'll always be somebody that has it worse than you. There is only one human being on the planet today who's literally got it the worst. I don't know who that is. God knows. There's someone today, literally, who's got the worst. So every other person, there's someone worse than you. I don't know who that poor guy is to, or woman is today. <laughs> Someone's having the worst day in the world. Actually, only God knows who that is, right? I mean, there's logic. It's just so, so that's a terrible way of dealing with your grief or losses because there's always going to be somebody unless you're that poor chump who, who's got it worse than you so don't deny 
you know, deny. We deny it. We can detach ourselves from the necessity of working through it. Secondly, we can deny it, or we, therefore we detach from it. We just, just, we just don't want to look at it. Um, certain personality types would have uh, to be able to do this very well. I think this is a danger I've got at times, where I can compartmentalize super well. It's part, it's part of the job. I have to do that. <laughs> so I'm not sleeping with all the crazy stuff you guys are going through. Jesus, I have to. Okay, I'm just stopping there. I've got to stop thinking about the crazy kids at Bay Vineyard and like just go to sleep. So you've got to be, so there's, there's a healthy thing on that on one level, but then there can be a danger where we just never face these feelings. We put them over here. Uh, we cut off emotional pain. And the reality is then when we choose to do that, actually you start, the, your bandwidth lowers in terms of not just the lows that you choose to avoid, but the highs and the joy get dulled as well. Uh, and so there, there's, uh, uh, you can start losing that sense of joy or wonder or gratitude when you don't engage deeply with those things. And thirdly, uh, we drug it. A lot of people in our culture, so a lot of people in our culture will deny the feelings, detach from the feelings or drug it, literally drug their pain with, um, with all the classic things there. Um, John Mark notes that scientifically and spiritual, this makes a bad problem worse. As the drugs, whatever drugs you use, make you feel better in the moment, but it's short-term and actually lowers your body's capacity to handle pain, making your emotional affliction, anxiety or sadness or whatever, worse in the long term. So you're forced to keep upping your dosage to kick the can down the road, so to speak, until you become an addict. And he would contend that all addiction is an attempt to avoid pain. But for, for most of us, we probably, some of us have got some testimony, playing around here, but for a lot of us, I think our drug of, of pain of choice can be a lot more cultural around just busying ourselves with work so that we don't have to face these things, where we just lose ourselves in that, or it could be uh, just jumping from relationship to relationship, uh, or it could be entertainment, or it could be social media, anything that's used as a distraction from our pain and our God rather than, than through our pain to God. So how do we process our grief? Well, if, if there's that whole thing of like, man, we can, we can easily deny it, detach it, or drug it, uh, what does it look like to process our griefs whether, griefs, whether they're big or little ones? And I'm contending we've got to take far more seriously the little ones that start accruing over our lives. Uh, how do we do that? Well, well, most of you guys will be familiar, if you go to the next slide, remind of, like, uh, of the stages of grief cycle. This is by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross back in the day. Uh, she wrote a book called On Death and Dying from her observations of, uh, as a hospice nurse. And the grief cycle, uh, which, which is helpful here, it's not a linear thing. It's a totally squiggly giant mess. Um, it, but think about if you start processing some of the little griefs. I've been observing. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a, a fascinating uh, a book called A Grief Observed. You know, when you start actually uh, noticing what you're noticing, like noticing what you're noticing, does that make sense? Like you're starting to actually be aware, even on little things, you can work, you'll see yourself work through some of the stuff where, you know, you're just a bit gutted and a bit detached, a bit numb from things. Then you get super angry about the whole, whatever's going on, whatever the loss is. Hashtag Rugby World Cup, uh, you know, and then depression. I'm ki not kidding. This is I've seen my mates go through this depression, depression and detachment. One of my mates, God bless him, uh, when we lost that when we lost in that quarterfinals to France way back in the day, it was about 15 years ago now. Um, his wife got so annoyed. She was like, after day three, where he was in this depression detachment thing, he was just moping around still. Where she's like, made him go for a walk around the block, and by the time he came back, he had to re-engage with the family, uh, and then bargaining and dialogue. Again, I've just noticed myself doing this, like trying to somehow 
just work out how I can get into a DeLorean and go back in time to change that particular choice I made or that particular situation, and then over time come into a place of acceptance. And what I want to suggest is that this is, this is very helpful stuff, uh, this, whether it's little grease or big grease, this is the stuff, the journey that we go through. And the invitation is to do this with Jesus, to bring this to Jesus, to, to, to allow Jesus into all of the feelings. Uh, and so how does Jesus navigate his own sorrows and losses and his grief? And as we read in, uh, in the passage today, there's this incredibly, probably arguably the most painful moment in Jesus' life, the night before his crucifixion, where he's feeling the weight of what's coming. And all of the, all, not just the, the physical brutality, but his friend's denial and the betrayal and his disciples' abandonment and the humiliation and all of that. And so what does Jesus do? And again, John Mark is unpacking this in his, in his upcoming book. Does he deny it? So, okay, God has a plan, other people have it worse. No. Does he detach from it? It is what it is. Kesedasida. No. Does he drug it? Let's go into town. Let's hit Jerusalem, hit the town one last way. No. He goes to the silent place. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's fascinating in Matthew 26. Uh, he, he says, He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him, and he began to be sorrowful. He began to be. He intentionally makes space for these feelings to come up. And he meets God in his pain by offering his feelings up to God with zero filter in prayer. I would like to suggest we need to get a little bit better at laments, grieving, journaling, processing the reality of our griefs with God. Like the, our Psalms, two-thirds of them are laments. Two-thirds of our hymn book are laments. That's, that's, a, that's a crazy. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, which has nothing to do with the little bun with the little white things on top of it. Like, it's to do with grieving. A whole book of the Bible. Now, again, if you're struggling with depression, don't go there at the moment. It's just not. It's, it, but what a great model and witness to us about what it looks like to process the, these things with God. Uh, so this account with Jesus is there to encourage us to trust the living God with the many, many deaths that occur in our lives. And the central message of the Bible is that uh, it's, through, um, it's through death that we find new life. And so any, any grief, any loss as we grieve leaving our country of, of birth or as we Consider the fact that that hair's not coming back unless I go to Turkey and do some weird things, you know, or uh, <laughs> oh, no, a hair transplant. That's not happening just by the way. Um, no, but we can do all these things, right? But, but what does it look like to actually embrace the lots of many deaths that we're going to have and continue to have and will carry? What does it look like to do that with Jesus? Because the central message of the gospel is that the story does not end on Friday. It ends on Sunday. The story ends with new life breaking into the world, but the pathway to that new life is by picking up our cross and embracing the death and meeting God in that place. And so uh, I know this is deep water, but it's like we are so passionate in this church about discipleship. Like that's honestly 
we're so desperately keen to be a church that helps people be a disciple of Jesus. And we've defined that by being a person that is increasingly learning to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did if he was you, right? We've heard that said a thousand times. But here's the thing. There's only so much we can put structure around devotional practices for be with Jesus. We can get all sorts of missional things set up for the do what Jesus did and we can learn to do, you know, grow in the prophetic and all that sort of stuff. But I'm not too sure how I can help you become like Jesus apart from put a lot of budget behind our counselling uh, pastoral care budget, which we do. Stack, like, big chunk of church. But here's why I wanted to preach this message is that working through our grief with Jesus is one of the main ways that we can get transformed into his likeness more and more. It's through grief and loss and suffering that we become more like him, paradoxically. As we hug the cactus, as we embrace those painful parts of our lives with Jesus, healing starts to manifest itself and we start to become a little bit more like him. And ultimately, whether you, you go through loss or grief or not, is, is, is irrelevant. You will. It's what you do with that. And this, this will shape and form you into either a person of anger and bitterness and, and, and relational isolation or into a person who smells a little bit more like Jesus, who carries a little bit more fruit of the Spirit, who's got a little bit of Colossians 3 in their bones, who's got a little bit of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13. 1, you know, they're just becoming a person of love more and more and more. And so, so what's the hope, right? So this is the, this is the hope, is that we, uh, that we can become a little bit more like Him. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Uh, our losses are real, but so is our God, the living God. So the, the, the hope that we have is that we would become more like Jesus. I love that since Jesus' resurrection, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Um, in the secular worldview, it's like pain and suffering is meaningless. Uh, but for us, death has been defeated by Jesus. Hallelujah. And in Romans 5, it says this, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also, what? Glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. There is a formation that happens as we grieve well. Romans 8, 28, a scripture we know very well. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Which is incredible, the very pain and suffering that can, can derail people's spiritual formation can actually become the secret to our spiritual formation. Those are the things where we get shaped and formed. And so there is a sense of formation here. Uh, Richard Rohr in his uh, book, Falling Upwards, says, there's a gravitas in the second half of life, but it is now held up by a much deeper lightness or okayness. I love this. Our mature years are characterized, I would say can be characterized, by a kind of bright sadness or a sober happiness. I think that that is so, uh, so true. It's like we go through the things, but there's a, there's a, there's something about people that have gone through those deep waters that uh, where they carry a, a bright sadness, uh, a sense of healthy brokenness, a humility. Uh, so we have this hope that, that there's a redemption to that the, the, the losses and the grief that we go through. Those things that have died and aren't going to come back, whether it's our youth or whether it's someone we love. It's not... Things aren't changing there. But there's a redemption in that. 
there's a formation in that. So that's the first. The second hope, though, and this is again, this is this is this is so central to the Christian theology. I mean, this is just is, is the hope that we have that He will return in glory and wipe away every tear. Like that's that's the hope that we have. Like like the losses that we got. It's like this isn't normal. This is, this is not normal. <laughs> Going through the stuff, but there's a sense of like, oh. Like the Bible says that creation is groaning, like, oh, come back. This isn't the way it's meant to be. And we join in with that groan, right? It's like, oh, this is, you know, outwardly I'm wasting away. Inwardly, I'm being renewed day by day. Hallelujah. But it still sucks I'm outwardly wasting away. <laughs> uh, and so there's so much hope dripping in the scriptures. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes this It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. And so like Paul here is trying to stir up faith and hope in, his, in the church in Corinth. So he's like, he's like but you know, like, as we say it, it builds up faith. So here we go. I'm going to say some stuff. And then what's he say? Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but at what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Like the Christian hope is this life-shaping literally a life-shaping certainty that our ultimate future is in the eternal love and glory of God in a new heavens and a new earth. That is the hope that we have. That's the central hope. That's we like, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, all that stuff. It's like the resurrection is the first fruits of, of what is to come for us all, hallelujah, that we will rise again in glory. Tim Keller, our Christian hope is that we are going to live with Christ in a new earth where there is no, not only no more death, but where life is what it was always meant to be. Oh, Lord, let it be. That's why the Bible's filled with, oh, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> come, Lord. As I've kind of gone through more and more sadness and grief and all that sort of stuff in my life, the ache of like, oh, would you return? is just growing and growing in me. And the hope that I have is that one day I'll see him again, I'll see him face to face, whether that is because he's returned in glory or because I have died to be with him, I can't wait to see him. Oh, come and enter into your rest, Harvey. I'm like, oh, yes, I need some, mate. That was full on. And I just love, like, I love that the Bible speaks of being present with Christ after death, and like N.T. Wright says about this future hope, and he's got to be one of the greatest minds to ever live within church history, I think, in terms of wrestling with what does that future hope look like. But he's like, he writes all this brilliant stuff, but he's like, at the end of the day, it's like a signpost into the mist. Don't know the details, but we know the big picture in terms of how it's going to look. But there is this great promise in the Bible of being reunited with the saints. And I'm like, again, it's a signpost into the mist, but I'm like, man, that's going to be a good party. That's going to be a good party. In the Old Testament, when a person died, the biblical writers said that he was gathered to his people. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David's infant child dies, David confidently said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. 
David evidently expected to see that child again. When sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus said, Take this cup and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Christ was promising that he and his disciples would drink the fruit of the vine together again in the age to come. Uh, I mean, just these, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I'm like, as we navigate through life, that Christian hope is central. We are a community of faith, hope, and love. And so as we navigate through grief, as we work through the things, we have a hope because in, in the, as we choose to do that deeply, feel it, process it with Jesus, vent it, journal it, weep it, all the things, there's something that happens in our soul that helps form us to be more like Jesus. And the hope we have also is that one day he will return in glory and that we will rise again and that we will have a great party together. I'm looking forward to seeing Uncle Colin. Looking forward to seeing my grandfather. Drinking the vote. It's back together again. And it's tough waiting. Life seems oddly long and, and freaky short all at the same time. And it's the great hope that we have. And so this morning we finish by coming to the cross, by taking communion together. Um, Tim Keller tells the story of a Presbyterian preacher and theologian, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Uh, his wife uh, tragically had died from cancer and he's driving back from the funeral of his wife with the four children. And um, he was especially wanting to help the youngest process all that was happening. And he said to his, his children, you see that truck as they're driving along the road? He said, do you see the shadow of that truck? Because some was sitting. And he said, would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? <laughs> the kid was like, well, by the shadow. And, uh, and this wonderful theologian, Donald Gray Barnhouse, said, because Jesus was hit by the truck of death, your mother only had to go through the shadow of it. It's lost its sting. It's lost its sting. So we have this hope, we have this incredible hope because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. That's the reason we have this hope. And so this morning, uh, as we come to the table, as we uh, come to remember Jesus' death and and resurrection, um, I want to just really encourage us as a church um, to process our grief. I'm not saying we're going to do that just this morning. Of course, we're going to give opportunity if people would like to receive prayer and just to take a moment just to reflect. Of course, we're going to do that. But this is actually about, uh, this is a sermon saying this is actually an important priority in your life. In the same way that Jesus had moments where he allowed that sorrow to rise up and he felt it and he processed it with God. Friends, it is dangerous if you keep running. It's important to, to acknowledge that we're carrying grief, that we're working through losses, that, uh, that, that we've experienced these things that have hurt and that we're sad about, and to process them and to feel them and to sit with Jesus with them and to allow him to meet us in that place. Uh, the only way out is through. It's the only way. With grief, the only way out is through. You've got to work through the things. So... Please don't, minim- don't minimize the little things. Work through them. Something, and of course, when the big things, when the big king hits come, do your best to, to, to do that journey with Jesus as deeply and, and as thoroughly as you can. And, and so this morning, there is an invitation to process some of our losses with Jesus. Um, 
like the Bible's clear, he knows what it feels like. Isn't that lovely? He knows what it feels like. He sees and he cares.